Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab those. Uh, I'll let you know where to turn here in just a second. Um, but before uh, we get into the teaching this morning, I just wanted to offer a, a quick word uh, and acknowledgement on the events this week uh, at Austin East High School here in Knoxville. So many of you have probably heard by now, um, there was a shooting uh, earlier this week involving both police and students uh, there at the school. A student, Anthony Thompson Jr., was killed. Uh, a police officer named Adam Wilson was injured. Um, and obviously there's a lot that we don't know yet because the investigation is ongoing, because the body cam footage has not been released. Um, But there are a few things that we do know, and I felt like it was worth sort of um, talking about those for just a moment here this morning. Um, Three things specifically that we do know that affect how we respond to something like this as followers of Jesus and as God's people. Um, First, we know that a family is grieving. That family did not expect that morning to be the last time that they saw Anthony alive. Um, They thought that they had years left to to enjoy his presence, to to celebrate him, to laugh with him, to enjoy being with him, and now he's gone. So, and regardless of what exactly took place in those moments at the school this week, regardless of whose fault it is or isn't that it happened, I think scripture calls us to mourn with those who mourn and to grieve with those who grieve. It doesn't matter whose fault it was. We're still called to do that. So I think that's one thing worth acknowledging. The the second thing that I think is worth acknowledging is that a community is hurting, specifically a community right here in our own city. Many of you probably know that this is actually the fifth Austin East student to be killed in the past four months, really more like three months. And if you aren't directly a part of that community at Austin East, I just want you to try to imagine for a second the cumulative pain and hurt and fear that many people in that community might be experiencing right now. It's honestly hard for me to fathom that much tragedy over that short a period of time. And so again, we as God's people are called to hurt with those who hurt. Notice I didn't say argue with their hurt, not, not respond to their hurt with, but what about type statements, but hurt along with them and alongside them. That's the second thing. The third thing, um, and maybe this one will be a little bit more controversial, but that's fine. The third thing worth acknowledging is that there is work to be done. Regardless of what details end up revealing about this particular situation and what happened and whose fault it was, here is the reality both in our community here in Knoxville and our nation as a whole. There is a deep distrust and skepticism towards the police by many of those in the black community and there seems to be a deep distrust and skepticism towards the black community by some police. And something needs to be done about all of that. 
There's a lot of different things that could be done about that. I don't know that here is the time or the place to debate about that or propagate about that. But I think we can all agree that a community cannot function if that remains the case long term. And so something needs to be done. There's work to be done. And as followers of Jesus, I believe that we are called to be agents of justice and reconciliation in our world. And so whatever needs to be done about that, we as followers of Jesus should actually be leading out on that. We should be leading out in the area of justice and reconciliation, whatever that looks like, however God has particularly wired each one of us to participate in that. We have a significant role to play as followers of Jesus. So I think I'll just conclude and then we'll spend a moment praying by saying this, um, there, there is plenty um, that you could do to tangibly help the Austinese community right now. If you just go online, search some of the local news stations, search on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, plenty of people have posted bullet-pointed lists of things that you can do to help those who are grieving and hurting in the Austinese community. I'm not gonna reinvent the wheel up here. If you have trouble finding any of that stuff, come talk to us. We're in conversation with a member of our church who's a Young Life leader at Austin. Austin East and kind of talking about what we might be able to do as a church. And so we'll keep you posted if there's anything that we can all join together in on that front. But what I thought we could do this morning, just before we get into our teaching text, is just spend a moment in prayer for the Austin East community, both acknowledging the hurt that is there, asking God to comfort, as well as asking God what he might have us do as followers of Jesus to help in any way we can. So if you guys will pray with me for a moment. Um, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus who is talked about in the scriptures as a man of sorrows, a man well acquainted with grief and pain. God, there is no amount of hurt or tragedy or pain or brokenness that Jesus has not felt the direct effects of on our world. And so God, I, I pray first and foremost for, for people in the Austin East community that you would be, the presence of Jesus would be powerful with them in the coming days. God, as they are just still reeling, haven't even gone back to school yet because of just the amount of fear and pain and tragedy that happened in that building, God, I pray um, that as they slowly return to some bizarre version of normal for them, that they would find your peace and your presence there with them. God, I pray that you would make that known supernaturally to them, that you would make it known through your people, through teachers and faculty and students there that already know you and know the peace that you offer. God, I pray that you would work through them to provide that. God, those of us in the room that are directly connected to the Austin East community, I pray that you would give us um, tangible ways that we can help with that. And God, I pray that we would hear the cry of people who are experiencing brokenness in our community and that we would look for ways um, to make you known and to make your comfort known to them. So God, would you help us? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you give us discernment and the ability to see all of that and do it well? We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, thanks for doing that with me. Um, if you've got a Bible, like I said earlier, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 
8. If you are new around here, we are currently in one part of a multiple year series where we are walking through the book of Matthew, sort of passage by passage, story by story, um, seeing what we can learn from the life of Jesus that was recorded in that particular book of the Bible. And specifically in this part of the series that we started last week, we are learning mainly from the interactions that Jesus has with various types of people that he comes across in the Gospel of Matthew. So last week, we looked at three separate stories of Jesus interacting with different people that needed healing, physical healing from various illnesses. And we saw him heal every single one of them as a result of those interactions. Now, today we're going to look at three more stories, but each of these stories is about slightly different things. In fact, on the surface, these three stories may not sound like they have much at all to do with each other. But what we'll find out is that they actually have lots to do with each other. I think there's actually one theme that runs straight through all three of these stories, and it's a theme that honestly runs straight through chapters 8 through 10 as a whole, and it's a topic that has incredible relevance for our lives today as followers of Jesus. But before we get into what that topic is exactly and talk about it, we're just going to start off by trying to wrap our minds around each of these stories. So pick it up with me, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Here's what it says. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So picking up where we left off last week in our passage, people are coming out to Jesus in droves to be healed by him and interact with him. Jesus, on the other hand, who was never big on crowds just for the sake of crowds, he tells the disciples to head over to the other side of the sea, the lake there in the area. But as they do that, two would-be disciples come up to Jesus and ask to follow him. Now, I say would-be disciples because Jesus sure doesn't sound like he is eager for them to come along and join his team. In fact, his reaction to both of these men could, could probably be described as more discouraging than encouraging in regards to them following him. So let's take a look at each of them. The first man who approaches Jesus is a scribe. It tells us he's a scribe. Now, a scribe would have been an expert in the Mosaic law. Likely, he was smart as a whip, especially as it related to what you and I would call the Old Testament. In other words, as a disciple, he would have been a catch by most rabbis' standards. Most rabbis at the time would jump at the opportunity to have someone so smart, so well-versed in the law of Moses come and join their team as a disciple. This guy was a first-round draft pick, and he most likely realized that he was a first-round draft pick. He probably approaches Jesus expecting that Jesus would be glad and eager to have him aboard as a disciple. Jesus doesn't quite see it that way, though. Instead, he responds with this statement about how foxes have holes and birds have nests, but how he himself, Jesus, the son of man, is how he refers to it, has nowhere to lay his head. 
So what exactly is Jesus like speaking in riddles? Like what is happening here exactly? So what was happening is that generally, if you apprenticed yourself to a rabbi like Jesus was, there were some decent benefits that came along with that for you. You you were either put up in very nice accommodations while you apprenticed yourself to this rabbi, or you were put up in the homes of well-off people as accommodations. But Jesus is making it very clear to this guy in the story that he will not enjoy any such accommodations as Jesus' disciple. Jesus clarifies that even he himself does not get that kind of treatment And so certainly his disciples should not expect that kind of treatment either. Jesus says essentially, if you want to follow me, you need to follow me because of who I am and because I'm worthy of being followed, not because you will tangibly benefit from it in some way. The next person that approaches Jesus, that that wants to follow Jesus, he says he first needs to go bury his father. Now, that honestly could be read any number of different ways. It could mean his father has recently died, he needs to be there for the funeral. It, It was also common for Jewish people at the time to have two burials, so one initially right after you died, and then one about a year later where the remains would be transferred to a different location, so it could mean that, it could mean the second burial. Or he could just mean, my father is approaching old age and I don't want to miss these years with him before he dies. It honestly could be any number of those different things. But regardless of what exactly he means, Jesus' response to him is very clear. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus calls this man, and this is hard for us in a lot of ways, Jesus calls this man to have a greater allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom than he does to his own flesh and blood family. Now, that probably sounds, like I said, really intense to us today, but it would have sounded exponentially more that way to a first century Jewish audience. Family was quite literally everything to them. And here, Jesus seems to be calling his disciples to detach themselves in some way from the strongest human relationship that they had and reattach themselves to a heavenly family and a heavenly purpose. Jesus says that following him looks like giving him your complete allegiance and that his authority supersedes even the strongest human authority that there is. That's our first story in the passage. Let's take a look at the second one. Hopping back in with me at verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat to cross to the other side, his disciples followed him. And behold, there was a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Storm raging out on the sea, Jesus is snoozing. I take that to mean Jesus is serious about his nap game. One of the many reasons I follow Jesus. I really respect that in a person. Verse 25, and they, the disciples, went and woke Jesus saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said back to them, I love this question that Jesus asked, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? You got to think the disciples, after Jesus asked that question, are going, uh, because of the storm and how we're all going to die? Did we forget that part when we came and woke you up from your nap? Like, that's why we're scared. We're scared because we're all going to die. But look at this. 
Then he, Jesus, rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, in the original language, uh, that doesn't just mean it stopped storming. It means that that the, the water became like glass, like the early mornings on the lake before a boat has even gotten out on the water. All of a sudden, it went from a great storm to a great calm. Not a single wave to be seen. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Okay, so on this one, you need to know that for many ancient people at the time, the sea or the ocean was seen as the the representation, the embodiment of chaos and destruction and unpredictability. So even today, there are books and movies about how large ships with all their technology can be capsized because of a storm out on the seas. So you can imagine how intimidating the sea would have been for people back then without any of that technology. And so you can imagine how they felt about that, but, but that's also why throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, the Bible talks about how Yahweh, the God of Israel, has authority over the wind and the waves and the stormy sea. I'll give you just a few examples so you can see what I mean. We'll put these up on the screen. Psalm 65 verse 7 says this, God who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Psalm 89 verse 9, talking to God, says, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107 verse 29 says, he stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. And we could go on from there. There's plenty more like that where those came from. But for people at the time, claiming that God could tame the sea was to say that he was more powerful and authoritative than anything else in all of creation. If the raging sea listens to you, you win, always. You're the biggest and baddest that there is. So by Jesus calming the raging seas in this story, he is trying to make what should be a fairly obvious claim to actually be the God of Israel. He is trying to show the disciples clearly what his true identity is. Jesus is saying, those psalms that you've read about how God can calm the sea, those psalms are about me. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. And yet, at the end of the story, the disciples completely miss it. Their response to this unbelievable show of power and authority by Jesus is to ask the question, what sort of man is this? So they marvel at what Jesus did, but they conclude that he is simply some sort of superhuman. Rather than the more obvious conclusion, at least to us today, that he is God himself. They miss what Jesus is trying to say with his actions. That's the second story. Let's take a look at one more. You guys doing all right? Making it? Cool. One last story, starting in verse 28. It says this, And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, a predominantly Gentile region at the time, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, that's a scene pretty much directly out of a horror movie, right? Can you imagine, like, you're walking near a cemetery and two demon-possessed men start coming out to meet you? Like, this is the opening scene of every bad zombie movie that you've ever seen, right? This is terrifying, 
So these men come out, they've been terrorizing the entire village. Nobody wants to go over there anywhere near where they are because of how terrifying they are. And behold, they, the demon-possessed men in the story, cry out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now that's an interesting response. We're gonna come back to that. Verse 30. Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, they pleaded with Jesus, in other words, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And he said to them, go, and they came out, and they went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Okay, in this last story, Jesus casts out demons of two men who are possessed by them. But the interaction that he has with these men before he does the exorcism, so to speak, I think is a very telling interaction. So upon seeing Jesus, these men are presumably the, the demons that are speaking through them. They say to Jesus, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Now that title, son of God, is an undeniable recognition of Jesus's identity. Undeniable that they recognize this is God in the flesh. So finally, we have a character in the story who recognizes who Jesus truly is, what type of identity he truly has, and what type of character is it that recognizes Jesus's true identity? A demon. That's a little unexpected, right? Some of the first people in the story to recognize Jesus's true identity are the ones most opposed to him. And then these demons in the story, apparently terrified of Jesus's presence and his authority over them, they beg him to, if he cast them out, to send them into this herd of nearby pigs. Jesus agrees, the pigs run off of a cliff and drown in the sea. Now, you have to understand that raising pigs was a very lucrative business in this particular region. So after people in the region hear that Jesus has destroyed some of their livelihood, they come out to Jesus and they also beg him to leave their region. So think about that. Jesus takes care of two men haunting a graveyard and terrorizing an entire village and then he gets run out of town for doing it. What a story, right? So those are our three stories for today. Now here's our question. What do these three seemingly random stories have to do with each other? Why did Matthew choose to put these three stories together in his gospel? We have Jesus discouraging two people from following him, Jesus calming the storm on the sea, and then Jesus exercising demons and getting run out of town. What theme could we possibly find in all three of those narratives? Well, here's at least one theme I see, and I've sort of hinted at it already in the teaching. I think these three stories are meant to demonstrate to us the authority of Jesus. These are stories about Jesus's identity and therefore his authority. So in the first story, Jesus is insisting that he has the authority to override a person's loyalties, their loyalties to possessions and comfort, 
and even their loyalties to their own family. In the second story, Jesus displays clearly his authority over nature itself by commanding the wind and the waves to immediately be stilled, and they do. And in the third story, Jesus displays his authority over the demonic and the demon-possessed such that they shudder and beg before him and do precisely what he says. In all three stories, there is a clear display of Jesus' definitive, absolute authority. And yet simultaneously, there are people in these stories who reject or at least fail to recognize Jesus' authority. The disciples on the boat marvel at what sort of man this is, but they fail to see him as the God that his actions clearly show himself to be. And the people in the village would rather Jesus leave their region altogether than reckon with a man who has more power and authority than the demonic men terrorizing their village. So it's hard to miss the irony here when you think about it in these terms. In these stories, nature and evil itself recognize who Jesus is and his authority, but the people in the story don't recognize it. These are all stories about Jesus' authority and about how various people and things respond to that authority. And I think the main question that these stories are meant to leave us with as a result of reading them is actually very simple, very straightforward, but we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking what it looks like. The question that these stories are meant to leave us with is this, will you accept the authority of Jesus? Will you accept the authority of Jesus? I think that's the question that we're left to answer. Will we be those who recognize Jesus' authority and respond appropriately to it? Or will we be those who deny Jesus' authority, either directly or simply by failing to recognize who he truly is? You know, A lot of people today uh, like Jesus. A lot of people like him. A lot of people think he's interesting or intriguing or, or maybe intelligent. A lot of people think that Jesus said some pretty insightful things about humanity or he taught some decent ethical principles. Plenty of people find Jesus to be an interesting historical person. That's one thing. But you need to understand that followers of Jesus don't just think Jesus is interesting. They think Jesus is king. They think he is the name above every name. He is the king above all kings. He is the authority over and above every other authority that there is. To be a follower of Jesus is not just to find Jesus interesting or helpful. It's to find Jesus authoritative. It's to accept him as the absolute authority over your life. Now, I do realize that authority can be a difficult subject to discuss here in the 21st century. That word, the word authority, probably registers quite negatively for a lot of us because we have plenty of examples in our world of bad authority. All you have to do is turn on the news for five minutes and you will see examples of this, right? So CEOs who who exploit cheap labor while they become multi-billionaires as a result. Parents who mistreat and manipulate their kids. Pastors who commit and or cover up abuse in the church. 
Or maybe for you, you don't even have to turn on the news to see examples of bad authority. You have people in your life from your childhood and even now who are examples of bad authority. And because of all of that experience, for a lot of us, our immediate sort of gut level reaction to anyone claiming authority over us is to find fault with it. Well, I'm not going to give this person authority because of this character flaw that they have. I'm not going to give this person authority over me because of something they said or they did in the past. I'm not going to give that person authority over me because they associate themselves with this belief or this movement or this policy or this politician. And the reality is sometimes those are really good reasons. Those are legitimate reasons to reject authority over us at times. And sometimes it's just a game that we try to play to dismiss even good authority over us. But either way, whatever your thoughts are on all of that, here is the thing about the authority of Jesus. There are no faults to find in him. Jesus is the one and only perfect authority that there is. There is no sin in him. There are no character flaws in him. There is no bias in him. There are no skeletons in his closet to uncover which puts us, I think, in a place similar to the two would-be disciples at the beginning of our story. We can either give Jesus absolute authority over our lives or not give him authority at all. He's either worthy of it or he's not worthy of any of it. There's no redirecting or changing the subject for us, just a question, will you accept Jesus's authority or will you reject it? Maybe to put it slightly differently, will you engage in actual discipleship to Jesus or will you accept some form of fake discipleship to Jesus? Now to help us answer that question in our own lives at a practical level, I want to just give you what I consider to be two versions of fake discipleship that we find in the passage in that opening story about the two would-be disciples and two that I think we see a lot in our world today. Two ways that we often approach Jesus thinking that we're giving him authority without actually giving him authority. These come directly from that earlier story. So version number one, version number one of fake discipleship is I'll follow Jesus as long as I benefit from it. I'll follow Jesus as long as I benefit from it. So this one we see in the first would-be disciple in our passage. He is ready to follow Jesus wherever Jesus goes. But Jesus indicates in his response that this guy might be in it for the benefits and not for the discipleship itself. He makes sure that this scribe understands that there will be no five-star accommodations for being a disciple of Jesus in his day. If he follows Jesus, if this guy follows Jesus, it needs to be because Jesus is worthy of following, not because it's some form of exclusive club with benefits to gain from it. Now, I've seen this posture often in people today. For some people, I think there's this tendency towards saying, I will follow Jesus as long as life goes the way I thought it would go as a result of following him. Or I'll follow Jesus until the moment that life does not go for me the way I thought it would go as a result of following Jesus. 
I'll follow Jesus as long as he gives me the job that I feel like I deserve. I'll follow Jesus as long as he gives me the the lifestyle that I want, the standard of living that I want. Uh, This is one, I think especially for our church where there are a lot of single people. I'll follow Jesus as long as they give me the spouse that I want. And preferably a hot one is what most people tend to say. I'll follow Jesus as long as he gives me the kid with the type of behavior and interest and talents that I want them to have. I mean, have you seen any of this in your life or the life of others? These are all just different iterations of what that scribe said, what that scribe wanted. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted to follow Jesus because of the benefits. And listen, I'm not saying that any of those things I just listed out are necessarily bad things to desire. They might be fine. But I am saying that if your posture towards Jesus starts to turn the moment that he doesn't give you the life you thought you would get, I think that's revealing. Because I think that might show us that we were following Jesus for the benefits and not because of who he is. That's the first form of fake discipleship that we see in the story. The second one is this. Fake discipleship number two is I will follow Jesus in everything except for this one thing. I'll follow Jesus in everything except for this one thing. I think this posture we see in the second would-be disciple that comes up to Jesus. He qualifies his discipleship to Jesus, his commitment to Jesus with his loyalty to his family. He places his allegiance to Jesus right after his allegiance to his family. And Jesus' response indicates that discipleship to Jesus doesn't actually work as a secondary allegiance. It doesn't work as a secondary allegiance. Discipleship to Jesus actually requires that we give God our primary allegiance, an acknowledgement of his authority over and above all other authority. Because here's the thing. Partial allegiance is not actually allegiance at all. Do you guys know what the word allegiance means? I looked this up this week. Allegiance means undivided devotion. Undivided. So if your allegiance is to Jesus in every area except one, you actually have no allegiance to Jesus at all. Because by definition, it's divided. It's not allegiance in the first place. Your allegiance is actually to whatever that one thing is is, whatever the one thing in your life that Jesus does not get authority over. And I've got to say here in the Bible Belt, I've been doing ministry in this context for almost 10 years now. Here in the Bible Belt, we have almost made a sport out of the second one. I will give Jesus my allegiance in everything except this one thing. Sometimes I think we even sound strikingly similar to this second would-be disciple in how we do it. So Jesus, you can have complete authority over my life, except when following you might make life less ideal for my family or my kids, and then obviously it's family first. You should understand that, Jesus. You invented family first radio, so obviously you get it, right? Jesus, you can have every part of my life as long as you don't start trying to tell me what to do with my time or my money. Jesus, you can have complete authority over my life, over everything except for who I sleep with and also how I sleep with people and also when I sleep with people and how many people I sleep with. 
God, you can have authority in everything except my sexuality. Jesus, you can have complete authority over my life as long as I can keep my current preference for materialism and my current standard of living. I mean, we do this, don't we? I do this. We do this. We have a tendency to say, I'll follow Jesus in everything except for this one thing. So we come in here on Sundays and we sing lyrics like, make way for the king. Kings and kingdoms will bow down before the lion and the lamb. And yet as we do that, we are holding significant portions of our life behind our back. Just thinking that the king won't notice. Do we really think the conquering king of the world who is going to make every king and kingdom bow down to him one day is fooled by the things that we're holding behind our back? And I'll just say this, here is the absolute insanity about us trying to live life in that way. Every single bit of Jesus' authority happens to be for our good. There's not a single thing right now that you are withholding from Jesus that would not go better for you if you let him have it. Maybe not better by our narrow definition, but truly better. What Jesus desires is to give us hope and life and freedom from the things that rule over us right now, but how often do we forfeit that because we would rather cling to the things that destroy us? I've had friends who held on to their sexuality, who they slept with and when and how for years and years of their life and putting that part of their life under Jesus's authority was the most difficult, most complicated thing that they ever had to do. They would have said at the time that it felt like part of them was dying by submitting that to Jesus and yet on the other side of it was life. I've had friends who who held on to their money. They wanted to spend every bit of cash they had on bigger and nicer and flashier things for themselves. And they would have said that giving Jesus authority over their finances was the most difficult thing that they've ever had to do, that they hated it at the time. And yet on the other side of it all, they found freedom. There's not a single thing that you give to Jesus that won't be better off as a result of you giving it over to him. It's just a question for you of whether or not you consider him to be worthy of that. So I think what both of these versions of fake discipleship reveal is that while we may all, as followers of Jesus in the room, while we may all acknowledge the authority of Jesus in theory, sometimes we really struggle to implement it in specifics, don't we? But again, I'll just remind all of us, myself included, Jesus did not arrive on the scene to partially disciple you into his image. He arrived on the scene to disciple all of you into his image. And that is the best thing possible for you. To put it another way, Jesus is not applying to be your consultant. You guys know how consulting works, right? If, you're, if you hire a consultant for you or your business, they're sort of at your disposal, right? There's no issue whatsoever with accepting some of what they say and absolutely rejecting other things that they say. That's just how consulting works. It's sort of pick and choose from your perspective. Jesus is not your consultant. He's the king. Now, you can choose to accept him as king or reject him as king. 
But the one thing you can't do is treat him like a consultant. It will not work that way. That is not discipleship to Jesus. And yet, in spite of all of that, here is what is amazing to me about Jesus. The king of the world with all power and authority over everything. Everything he rightfully claims is his. Despite all of that, still... Jesus does not force anyone to live under his authority. He doesn't use threats or intimidation or to scare people onto his team. After he calms the storm and the disciples don't quite get who he is, he doesn't say, but guys, did you see what I did? Did you see what happened? Do you see what I'm capable of? You have to recognize who I am now. When the people ask him to leave their village because of what happened with the pigs drowning in the sea, he doesn't say, okay, fine, if you're going to treat me like that, I'll bring the demons back and then you'll have to bring me back. It's not what Jesus does. It's not who God is. He doesn't trick people into being under his authority. He doesn't coerce. He doesn't intimidate. He doesn't manipulate people onto his team. He offers. He says, either follow me or don't. Either give me complete authority over your life or give me no authority over your life. But I will not do partial authority. Now, with all of this said, I I do want to make just one caveat that I feel like is important to recognize. If you are here in the room today, you're listening online, um, and you are what you consider to be in the early stages of trusting in Jesus, if you're still wrestling with who Jesus is and and if he can be trusted and if he truly was who he says that he is, I, I want you to know that there's room for that. There's room for you being in process at the moment. There's room for doubts and hesitations and questions as you're coming to discover who Jesus is. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it's a process. I want you to know that's okay, but I am saying that the question that you will eventually have to answer if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, and the question that all of us have to answer if we want to be a disciple of Jesus, is this. Can Jesus be trusted as our absolute authority? Is his authority trustworthy? Now, I would argue that Jesus has, a, has proved that his authority is trustworthy precisely because of how different his authority is from all other types of authority. There's a passage that we'll cover later on in Matthew, it's in the Gospel of Luke as well, where Jesus states explicitly the difference between his brand of authority and the world's brand of authority. Because they're different, they're very, very different. He says, essentially, okay, this is the way that the world does authority. They lord it over you, they try to control you, and then they say that they're doing that for your good. Many of you have probably experienced that unhelpful type of authority in your life. Jesus says, that's how the world does authority. But then he says, authority is not like that in my kingdom. In my kingdom, he says, the greatest among you, the person in a position of authority, what they do is they serve. They become a servant of all. Authority is lived out in my kingdom, not by how high and mighty and superior you are, but in how you take the posture of a servant to everyone. 
And then he connects that directly to his own life by saying, I, Jesus, am among you as the one who serves. And as Jesus delivers that line, he is literally hours away from his execution. He chooses to spend that time serving a meal to his disciples. What he is communicating through his words and his actions is that he is an altogether different type of authority. Jesus, the one who commands the wind and the waves, the one who terrifies demons and darkness with his presence, he chooses to display his authority by serving others. He chooses to express his highness through lowness. And then he takes it a step further by saying, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' life was marked not by lording authority over people, not by ascending the ladder of power, so to speak, but by descending it. And that posture of Jesus would culminate in him giving up his very life for humanity and forgiving the ones that killed him. Jesus is a type of authority that the world had never seen before, the type of authority where a person would endure death for the ones he is in authority over. Jesus says to the people of his day and ours, if we're listening, here's who I am. Here's the authority that I model. It's the authority that commands the wind and the waves, the authority that makes demons and darkness cower in fear, and simultaneously the authority that lays down my life for the good of my people. So the question for every single person in this room is whether you will live under that type of authority or set yourself against it. In heaven, there will be one throne for one person. And it's better for all of us if Jesus is the one on that throne and we're the ones gathered around it singing all power and glory and honor belong to him forever. And I'm telling you that that posture begins here and now by yielding every single bit of our lives to the good and loving authority of King Jesus. That's our prayer. That's what we're after. That's what it means to follow him. Let me pray for us to that end. Um, I do want to just take a second and just ask every one of us in the room in this moment to ask if there is part of our life that has not been given over to the good and loving authority of Jesus. Is there anything that in this moment, just as we sit here, the, the Holy Spirit is just flooding your mind with this is it. This is the thing that you have not given over to that authority. Is there anything that still claims functionally your highest allegiance? Anything that you say, I'll follow Jesus in anything except this thing.
want to just give you a second. Just ask, is that the case? And what do I need to do about it? Just ask the Holy Spirit that right now. Is there anything that I haven't given over to Jesus and what do I need to do about it? Take just a moment. Father, we thank you um, that you're good. God, we thank you that you rightfully claim every bit of power and authority in the universe. Um, that you made it all, that you, you made it to function in a certain way. And God, we confess that um, so often every bit of us rebels against that authority, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, not believing that you have our good in mind, not believing that you're for us, believing that you're holding out on us. God, not a lot has changed since that day, and we know that short of you intervening and short of you giving us your spirit, that is still who we are. So God, we just want to acknowledge this morning that you are for us. You have only ever been about your glory and our good. And because of that, you can be trusted. You are a trustworthy authority over our lives. Despite all the examples of bad authority we have in the world, you are good authority. And so, God, we, we want to just acknowledge this morning that if there's any part of our lives that we've tried to hold behind our back, that we've tried to withhold from you, we've given our highest allegiance, God, we want to ask that you would break through those walls that we've set up. God, that you would make your power and your authority known. Also, that you would make your love and your grace and your mercy known to us that you would help us to see that you can be trusted because of all of those things. And so God, if there's any of us that's still resisting, still holding things behind our back, would you break through? Would you do a work in us? Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to follow you, not with parts of our lives, but with our entire lives? God, we ask for your help, your spirit. We ask that you would bring us into a deeper awareness of who you are and what you have for us and what you desire for the world. I ask this in your name. Amen.